Canada was doing okay. It was pretty free. How come we're this, you know, bizarre authoritarian nation? I have to explain to them. Well, there was this slow creep amongst um, our, our decision makers over the last 20 years away from just, in, you know, interpreting and applying the evidence and interpreting and applying the laws to imposing their own views on, on society and remaking society in their own image. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Those of you who follow the show will know that recently um, we published a uh, online a, a video essay of a paper that I wrote called Here I Stand. Uh, it's for a book that I'm writing uh, called Leftist Lies, Laws and Liberties, uh, soon to come out. Um, but that paper discussed an issue that we're going to delve into today, and that is what is happening with professional colleges and societies, these self-governing entities that control professions in Canada. And, and more importantly, what happens when they decide to mete out discipline and individuals go before these boards of discipline? Um, should we be concerned about whether or not these boards have been corrupted or are following, uh, let's say, a pro-government narrative and not giving fair and partial hearings? Well, today on the program, we have our good friend James Kitchen, uh, Liberty Lawyer Fighter with the Liberty Coalition Canada. We also have one of his clients, uh, Dr. Wall, who's an Alberta chiropractor who's been impacted in this way. We talked a little bit about uh, Dr. Wall the last time James was here, but today we're going to get into this in more detail. So welcome to the program, uh, James, and also Dr. Wall. Thank you. Yes, Thanks thank for you. having me. All right. Uh, before we we dive into the the uh, topic um, more directly, as we always do, we're going to go to our aphorism sports. These ones um, it won't surprise deal with masks. Uh, the first one is from Oscar Wilde, who once famously wrote that a mask tells us more than a face. Next one is from French author Victor Hugo, who wrote that virtue has a veil and vice a mask. Uh, the next one is from uh, a friend of the show uh, who's been on uh, a couple of times and is someone very well known, uh, has about half a million followers on Twitter, and that's Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. And he just tweeted this today. He said this about a Cochrane study that we're going to be talking about, a meta-analysis on masking. Uh, he says, the bottom line, the New York Times unethically involved itself in a scientific dispute to spread the false idea high-quality scientific data say masks work to stop respiratory virus spread. So why are we talking about masking today? Well, uh, the, the main reason is that um, Dr. Wall uh, took a very courageous stand uh, that resulted in him being uh, disciplined and indeed suspended by his college. Uh, and uh, so, James, I wonder if we could start with you and explain basically what the whole legal dispute is and also um, talk about how the decision unfolded recently. I understand there was a hearing some time ago and then finally the decision came out in February. So the primary dispute, and again, thanks for, thanks for raising this issue because I know, um, you know, part of the problem is that issues come and go and people, people tend to forget about them, but, but this issue matters legally and uh, culturally to us, and it's going to continue to matter, uh, partly because it may happen again. And the reason we, or the, the, the way that we potentially prevent that is by dealing with it properly now. Um, so the issue for Dr. Wall always was in the beginning, you know, look, um, this thing gives me trouble when I wear it. And it gave a lot of people trouble. People who are listening will know that. They will, they will remember from wearing it how much trouble it gave them, whether it was headaches or lightheadedness or dizziness or nausea or whatever it was. And so Dr. Wall had some pretty serious symptoms as soon as he tried to wear this thing. And it not only impacted him, it impacted his ability to service clients, which he really cares about. He's a longtime chiropractor. He's got a lot of longtime patients. And so then it becomes an issue of physical and mental disability. These are protected grounds in the Human Rights Act. And um, this used to be a big deal that we, you know, we'd really try to help people who have disabilities uh, equally participate in society. 
Unfortunately, right. nowadays it's become more about you know whether or not you're, you're you're black or you're gay or you're something else that's really popular these days. If you're disabled or you're religious, those those grounds don't really matter as much anymore, and that's really unfortunate. Um, but that's always what it was about. It was about accommodation and the Human Rights Act, which of course is quasi-constitutional legislation and supersedes any sort of public health order. That's that's the law on paper. That hasn't been the law in practice, unfortunately. That's the law on paper. And that's what the case was always ultimately all about. We tried to explain that to the college. I was involved early on. Um, the college would have nothing, none of it. They tried to uh, suspend Dr. Wall's license on sort of um, an emergency basis, which is the kind of thing that's reserved for when professionals really go off the rails, like they're raping their clients, they're stealing money, that type of stuff. That's what that's reserved right. for. So they were sort of you know, implicitly comparing Dr. Wall to somebody who's actually hurting his patients. And obviously Dr. Wall wasn't. They were unsuccessful. Dr. Wall kept his license and he actually practiced without a mask for uh, two years while these proceedings went on. And of course, nobody was harmed. Um, so we had our hearing and the primary argument was about, look, there was, there was no undue hardship on the college or on anybody else because masks don't work. And if they don't work, that means there's no undue hardship. It means you have to accommodate Dr. Wall. You have to permit him to not wear a mask because he has mental and physical disabilities. He has reasons for why he can't wear one. It makes him, uh, it, it causes symptoms for him as it does for many people. No surprise right. there, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, we brought in the scientific experts to back that up, right? To show that they don't work. And if they don't work, this is how this is how the legal analysis works. If they don't work, there's no undue hardship. You, he has to be accommodated. And if he has to be accommodated, that means you can't discipline him for having a disability that renders him unable to wear a mask. That was the main argument. There were some other issues in there because uh, in addition to the college attempting to punish him for not wearing a mask, they also wanted to punish him for not telling his patients that masks work. Oh, really? Yeah. So there was there was some compelled speech aspects. So I, I did bring in 2B of the charter. I did talk about freedom of expression. And I said, look, you know, professionals obviously have the right to express themselves if, if what they're saying is true, right? The college cannot censor uh, it's it's uh, health professionals if what they're saying is true. It, they may not like it, but if it's true, well, free expression protects true speech. You cannot penalize true speech as being unprofessional to share if it's true, right? And again, going back to that whole idea that scientifically speaking, as we know from the Cochrane study and all the other stuff before, masks don't work and they actually are harmful. We brought in Chris Schaefer as an expert as well to talk about right. how they're harmful. So Dr. Wall yeah. discussed these things with his patients. The college took objection to that, tried to penalize him for that, and so that was compelled speech. So that was sort of a side argument to the, to the main issue. So that was, um, it was a huge case, but that's sort of the essence of it. So uh, I want to come to you. Thanks for that, James, for that explanation. That, that sets us up rather well. Dr. Wall, I want to come back to you. And if you wouldn't mind, maybe take us back to the early part of the pandemic when you first discovered, it first came out, now it's been, uh, we just passed the three-year anniversary of the announcement of a worldwide pandemic. Uh, so take us back to that time in your practice and how did you decide to deal with that situation within your practice as a chiropractor? I know you've been practicing in Alberta for over 20 years at that point, but how did you decide to deal with that in terms of, you know, where you're going to continue your practice? How are you going to deal with your patients? Could you take us into that moment and those decisions mm-hmm. that you made? Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, you know, when the the pandemic first rolled out in early 2020, um, uh, quite honestly, I was quite skeptical about uh, the, the the narrative that was being portrayed by the uh, provincial and, and the federal um, health associations. And um, right away, I didn't buy into the fear aspect. I thought there's something fishy going on here mm-hmm. where the whole world seems to be following a certain narrative and, and just totally disregarding uh, basic common sense and, and really science from, from my end of things. I, I just, uh, so right off the start, I was pretty skeptical and I, I dug into looking into uh, the science and, and following certain people who were well-respected in the health uh, industries across the world and uh, looking at their, their thoughts and their uh, perceptions about what was going on. And so um, that, that kind of led me down a path of uh, right away, you know, not uh, perhaps trusting what was going on with the, the whole uh, narrative. But mm-hmm. um, and then our, our college came out with the uh, pandemic directive. And of course, like all health professions, um, uh, there were certain regulations that were put in place. And one of them obviously was masking. 
And um, honestly, I, I wore a mask um, uh, initially uh, to to obey those rules. And but right off the start, uh, putting a mask on, I was very aware that uh, not only uh, mentally was I anxious, felt claustrophobic, but uh, physically I, I had symptoms as well. And so uh, that was a struggle in my mind because I, I couldn't uh, concentrate well when it came to um, you know, note taking and, and mm-hmm. discussing with my patients what was going on and, and treating them. I, I felt physical disabilities, mental disabilities. So, um, after how, a couple how long, of months, how long did you wear the mask, uh, Dr. Wall? Before yeah, you no more than to... a couple of months. Okay. No more than a couple of months. Yeah. yeah. So, pretty good sample size anyway. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. And so, at the end of that couple of months, I decided uh, that no, I, I couldn't do this and, and offer the best care. To my patients so i stopped wearing one uh i did not indicate that or, or tell the college that um and um and then fast forward to december uh 2020 where an anonymous patient of mine complained to alberta health services that i wasn't wearing a mask and um so alberta health services contacted me we had a brief conversation and uh, the health officer said that they were going to pass that information on to the college uh, the next day, I received a, a call from the registrar. Uh, we had a brief discussion, and um, uh, I told him that I was not able to wear a mask and that, that I was mask exempt. Uh, he said that um, you know they had to deal with the the, uh, the public uh, perception of of health, and um, and so yeah, then the, the the registrar passed the call on to the complaints director. Uh, the complaints director called me the next day and a similar conversation ensued. And, and um, again, he was more concerned about um, the public health versus my accommodation of not being able to wear a mask. And, uh, and Dr. Wall, you had actually, not only were you very disclosive with the professional college, but you had actually gone to your patients and sought their consent to to treat them without the mask on, right? I mean, you were very, very clear with them and you and you and you gave them the option the choice of having you wear wear the mask or not wear the mask is that right yeah i had several interactions with patients patients that um you know asked me questions about it and and i was very upfront there was no negativity uh, mm. from a, a patient point of view uh they were very accepting um if there was a, a patient who uh, was not comfortable with my not wearing a mask I would not have known it. Uh, they may have uh, disappeared, but I, I wouldn't have known at the time. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, most people were very understanding. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but at some point, despite all of this, the college decided to suspend you and not permit you to practice. Is that right? Well, there was actually no suspension, but the complaints director did say that he was going to start a process of, of suspending my license. Okay. And he had to pass that decision on to a, a council-appointed uh, person to to uh, kind of solidify that. Mm-hmm. And that person actually said that, no, um, we're not going to suspend Dr. Wall's license, but we're going to put practice conditions um, on him and he can continue to practice. And so Did those, those practice- conditions include masking? No, those practice oh, conditions were basically obtaining patient signatures uh, who the patients were aware that I was um, not wearing a mask, that I had a mask exemption, mm-hmm. and uh, that they were okay to be treated by me and uh, without my wearing a mask. And then the second condition was uh, that they would sign a form that uh, said that they were uh, basically the pre-screening questions um, for COVID conditions were all met by that mm-hmm. patient. And so that was the two conditions that all patients had to uh before being treated. So how did this turn into a, a disciplinary situation? Go ahead. <laughs> so so a- after the college failed to get that, that what was supposed to be an interim suspension, that's when they launched the, the proceedings to actually go right. to the hearing. Okay. Right? It, took, um, it took a full year and a half to even get to the hearing. Right? And then, of course, wow. it took you know, another seven or eight months to get a decision. So that's how, even though this started in December 2020, you know, it wasn't until January 2023 that we got a decision, right? Because it took all that time. I mean, initially the college had to actually adjourn because it couldn't find an expert, 
I put three experts in. They couldn't find one. They told me they had to adjourn at the last minute to find an expert. Then they found one. And I found, I found the fourth I, one. So can I, can I ask you a question about this, James? Because I, I want to make sure I understand this correctly because this was really appalling. My <laughs> understanding is their expert was basically a GP. It was not an expert at all. He was just somebody who had medical training. But and you, you produced you produced yeah. like eminent, world-renowned experts that you know someone like Dr. Fauci or Dr. Town would call a fringe person. But I mean, we're talking about Dr. Byron Bridal, people of that nature, right? Very, very eminent experts on COVID and the efficacy of masking. Uh, but in the end, <laughs> my understanding is uh, the college actually preferred the evidence of, of the college's so-called expert to, to this whole uh, army of, of very renowned experts that you produce. Is that, is that, do I have that right? Yes. And oh, it's, wow. it's really quite laughable. Um, you know, it's, it's really sad. It's, it's, it's almost as if the, the four people on the tribunal who made this decision, they sort of expect nobody's going to read this. Nobody's going to read the transcripts. Nobody's going to hold, hold us accountable. Nobody's going to care. Like it's really quite laughable. It's an 87 page decision. It's, it's quite long. Um, but the analysis is really poor, uh, like embarrassingly poor. I mean, obviously, I read a lot of terrible decisions from judges that just totally disregard people's individual rights and freedoms and say government is great. and Government's the answer to everything. Right. Um, yeah. But this this has got to be one of the poorest, most embarrassing decisions I've ever read. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the interesting things about the decision is it, is it never cites to the record. Right. There's a 1400 page record in this case. The decision never cites to the record. Right. I, I submitted a 50 page factum that has about 100 citations to the actual transcript record of the evidence. Right. They didn't cite to the to the record once. They just sort of blithely say, well, well, we prefer this um, this expert here that the college has, even though he made two retractions, uh, even though he had only a quarter of the academic citations. Uh, even though, you know, he was actually very juvenile and unprofessional, even though most of the time he was just insulting the other experts instead of actually engaging with them in a debate. Really? Even, despite all wow. those things, we're going to prefer his evidence. We're going to ignore Dr. Byron Bridal, the eminent vaccinologist and immunologist. We're going to ignore the respirologist. We're going to ignore the, the medical microbiologist that's getting his degree in epidemiology from the London School of Economics. We're going to ignore all those people and we're going to take this, you know, this hip young um, doctor from uh, Calgary who's, you know, in, into the COVID vaccines and, and uh, you know, was advising Dr. Um, Dr. Uh, uh, Hinshaw on, on making the CMOH orders. We're going to take his advice, even though he's just a GP and doesn't know anything about immunology or anything like that. It really is. It's, it's, um, it's quite pathetic, really. That's, that's the word I'd have to use to describe right. it. So let's talk a little bit about, about the masking itself. So uh, as we know, for a long time, uh, you know, we were getting mask on, mask off, mask on, mask off uh, from people like Fauci and the CDC and Dr. Tam and Dr. Hinshaw. But recently, as you know, there there was a study that I mentioned that came out a meta-analysis of a number of different studies about masking. And this is this is considered the authoritative study by everybody except the people who are on the side of the science. But it basically says that um, masking makes no difference. In fact, this is what it says. It says um, the pooled estimates of effect from randomized controlled trials uh, for wearing medical surgical masks compared to no masks in the community suggests probably little or no difference in interrupting the spread of influenza-like illness. And yet uh, what we're seeing is in decisions like yours, tribunals and courts um, are still clinging to this sort of December 2020 uh, narrative of what the science is of, of masking. So so what do you think is going on, James? Why, what is happening? Why didn't why didn't this 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 tribunal, the, the college listen to you? You know that's a good question. I, I have to ultimately speculate. Um, you know, why, why does, why does one human being who seems to be mentally sane, um, who's talking to another human being who's clearly mentally sane, um, not engage in, in a discussion with, with reason and, uh, become persuaded when, when, when encounter uh, reason and facts and scientific evidence, um, that is, 
you know, that says one thing and, and, and then they just, they just totally ignore that and decide something else. Um, there is no, there is no room in this case for someone to merely disagree, right? The tribunal says, right. well, it's interesting. The tribunal says, we understand people disagree. We understand that these scientists disagree with Dr. Uh, who he was the expert, Dr. Who, um, we understand that these, these people disagree, but you know, I mean, look, there's, of course there's disagreement. Um, we don't, you know, it doesn't matter if there's disagreement, we're going to go with this one. Right. And it's almost as if it's, it's, it's almost as if we sort of abandoned all the actual basis for objective truth or reason or all the things that our society are based on. Right. It's not about whether or not somebody's actually factually correct, actually logically accurate, actually scientifically correct. It's not about whether or not there's actual truth. It's about, look, um, people will disagree and we're just going to decide to agree with whatever we want to agree with. And, um, you know, that's how it's going to be, which is basically saying truth and reason and logic don't matter. All that matters is that we have the power and this is where we want to exercise our power. And you guys can just all go pound sand with your truth and reason and logic and facts because it's just all about whether or not we have the power and you don't. And we do. Right. Right. That's, that, that's what was implicitly going on through this whole thing. I mean, I could tell as I was going through this process and I, I warned Dr. Wall and it was disheartening. I could tell I was being ignored. Right. Mm -hmm. The chair on this on this panel was um, an elderly man, a, a, a public member, so not a chiropractor. And he once fell asleep during the proceedings. Um, oh my goodness. And obviously I was watching the faces of the two chiropractors in particular that were involved and I could tell I was being ignored. Right. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. these people were impervious to facts and reasons and logic that undermined their ideological perspective of the world. Right. Right. And that's what COVID was all about. It was always all about ideology and fear. And it was about political narrative and it was about, you know, tribalism and positioning. It was never about science and logic and facts and reason. It was never about that. Right. And this mm -hmm. case is sort of, and manifestation of that. And I knew that going in, but I thought, well, you know, I have to do my best to work within the system and challenge it. And if I get the kind of ruling I actually expect I will get, which is one that will ignore all the evidence, then I can at least expose it to the world and show the world, look, this is just how corrupt this process has become, right? right. I have all the facts, right. all the evidence here. It cannot be ignored mm -hmm. you know, if you're actually engaging with it in, with, with a reasoned mind. And mm -hmm. yet it was, it was ignored, which shows that there's, there's ideological corruption, right? And that's, right. That's, what, that's what went on here, I think. Yeah. Well, this is an interesting topic, and uh, I want to come back to Dr. Wall and get his impression of this. But uh, we recently had on this program a couple of uh, lawyers, James will know about this, who, who uh, created a petition in, in protest of mandatory, essentially racial sensitivity training for lawyers that had nothing to do with their competency. Um, and, uh, and also, uh, there's a very, very highly publicized case right now involving Dr. Jordan Peterson, who is being, uh, made to take, uh, social media sensitivity training. Seems to me he should be teaching that course given his success on social media, but it begs the question of what is going on with these professional colleges. So Dr. Wall, you've been a chiropractor for a long time. Um, what is your impression of what's going on with the college? Are you concerned that there has been a, a political shift to the left with, within your profession uh, and specifically within your professional college? Yes, excellent question. And absolutely, I've, I've seen this shift. Um, I've, I've had discussions with family members over this saying, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, I could see a subtle trend uh, where the regulatory aspect of the college uh, had more and more power, was coming out with more and more uh, standards of practice and, and code of ethics that seemed to be um, more uh, heavy-handed. And um, so, yes, I, I'm very aware of this happening. And um, it is disconcerting. It, um, it, it makes... Um, a member, I believe, of these regulatory bodies, um, just kind of more fearful of practicing. You're, you're wondering if you're going to get um, crushed by your regulatory body at any moment for, right. for some strange little thing. And uh, so, yeah, it, it is a very big concern of mine. Part of what's troubling, I would think, is that um, these people ostensibly are working for you. You probably pay dues. Uh, the, the whole idea of a self-regulating profession is that you're there to uh, make sure that the public is is properly protected and served, but also that the membership, the interests of the membership are served. 
And, uh, you know, if you're afraid of uh, what your college is going to do to you at any given time because you might hold the wrong political views, that, that, that feels rather oppressive, doesn't it? Well, yes, it does. And uh, I believe just a year and a half ago, there was a separation uh, between the college and the association, um, which is a government um, um, issue that has been going on through the, the whole Health Professions Act. And so, yeah, the, the regulatory body or the college end of things is now more concerned about uh, just public uh, protection and public health. Uh, they don't really care about uh, the member. And uh, so at that point is where you feel like you're not being represented or accommodated if you have concerns or, or um, um, you know, cares or concerns, uh, even with respect to what's happened to me. So, yeah, I've, I um, mentioned this to the, the registrar and the complaints director with respect to my situation. Where, where's the accommodation uh, for, for my situation, my uh, public health or my mental concerns? And, and really, there, there was no, uh, no wiggle room at all. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I understand as a result of this decision, you have been sanctioned. Is that correct? No, not yet. Okay. So that's not coming. There's a hearing in June on that. Yeah. So, which is interesting. The college doesn't seem to be in a big hurry to sanction him. So I'm I'm curious about that. um, So yeah, they're going to have an opportunity to decide if they just want to say, okay, you know what? We did our thing. We we upheld the narrative. You can go now. Or if they're going to try to throw the book at him and suspend him for a year. I'm, I'm, I have no idea what position they're going to take. I haven't seen it yet, and it's going to be interesting. So, James, uh, this uh, I understand that you're, you plan to appeal the decision or take it to judicial review, uh, but you're not going to do that until after you, you go through the sanctions phase. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And the interesting okay. thing is the appeal. The legislation says that the appeal goes to the college itself, right? So just like the Law Society has the ventures. <laughs> The college has a council, okay? There's 10 people on the college council, five chiropractors, five public members. The appeal goes to them. So in, 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 in a sense, it's a very politicized appeal, whether, oh. whether good or bad. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because these people can step in and say, okay, you know what? Um, just from the perspective of the profession and, and, and no longer embarrassing ourselves, um, you know, we understand the tribunal thought they had to uphold the narrative. We're going to put an end to that. We're going to do what's right. We're going to show the public we actually care about science and evidence and about chiropractors providing quality health care. And we're going to overturn this decision. They could do that. They have they have the they have the authority in the legislation to just do that. Right. Um, so I'm very fascinated. I don't expect them to. I really don't. I mean, call me cynical. I don't. But I'm I'm really curious to see how they handle that. So then from there we'll go to the Court of Appeal of Alberta. So which will also be interesting. Um, right. So that's that's the appeal track, and I plan to go all the way that I can with this because uh, I don't want to. I, I I refuse to just take this line down. So. Well, and, and it sounds like, Dr. Wall, uh, you're, you're fighting not just uh, uh, for yourself, are you? You've, it's clear to me, and correct me if this is wrong, but my clear impression is that, that you've taken this fight to heart. You're, you're fighting not only on behalf of your, your colleagues uh, in, you know, in, 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 in chiropractic, but also on behalf of Albertans and Canadians generally, that uh, you're seeing that um, this is oppressive it's tyrannical, that it violates your rights. And that's part of why you're, you're continuing this legal fight. Do I have that? Do I have that correct? Or correct me if I'm wrong? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. It's always been about health freedom for me. Um, And uh, I I'm very aware that other chiropractors or um, people in the health profession, whatever it is, yes, public people um, that um, were in a, a challenging situation where they couldn't or didn't feel like wearing a mask, um, but were under compulsion or felt pressured to do it. Um, this is all about health freedom. Um, like I said, many chiropractors I know uh, did not wear a mask, but did not get in trouble with their colleges. Somehow they, they, they slid over the radar, uh, <laughs> but I'm the one here taking the heat, but I hope it's for the good. I know there's going to be some uh, outcome in the, in the future mm-hmm. that is, is good. So are the masks still mandated for chiropractors in the province or is that is that now gone passe i mean hardly anybody's wearing masks anymore unless you visit a hospital um or a judge who decides that we have to wear a mask in a courtroom that's another story eh, james uh but but are, are chiropractors still required to wear these masks when patients come in and they treat them no they're not um oh. 
No, they're not required to, but I believe there's uh, probably a still a strong recommendation uh, mm -hmm. to do that if, if there's any question or concern. Um, but uh, no, there's not a, an actual mandate. This must be very frustrating for you as a person who's involved in healthcare uh, when, when really the, the, the real weight of scientific evidence now is so clear that masking does nothing. And yet, and yet your college is just pressing on really in, in blind ignorance of that. They're, they're staring at the shadows dancing on the walls of the cave instead of looking into the light. Uh, this must really bother you. It, it is very frustrating. You know, it's, it's um, and even statedly so, the college, the, the regulatory part of the college has said it's not about the science. This is about the rules and regulations we've imposed, our, our standards of practice, our code of ethics. This is nothing to do about science. It's scientism. Wow. wow. That, that is really, uh, it's, it's bizarre and troubling. However, un unfortunately, not very surprising given the, the current climate of, uh, you know, regulatory appeals and things of that nature. Um, James knows because James is, is active in this sphere. Uh, dealing with uh, you know universities and uh, you know you, you, you know uh, union tribunals, labor tribunals, and things of that nature, that this seems to be commonplace. That's where I want to turn to next, James. Is um, there's this whole concept of um, judicial activism um, uh, that is is of concern. Of course, we have to dance around this a little bit because we're because we're lawyers, but we can maybe uh, cloak ourselves a little bit in, in the chiropractic college and how they dealt with. But the concept of judicial activism uh, is that um, judicial, th this school of thought holds that judges, uh, and, and using judges broadly, so this could be you know an administrative tribunal like the one that Mr. Wall was before, that they assume a role as independent policymakers or independent trustees on behalf of society that goes beyond their traditional role as interpreters of a constitution or a statute or laws or a code of ethics on behalf of chiropractors. Um, so James, I want to come to you. Do you have some thoughts about this? This seems to be a very active trend, certainly in Canadian law and, and with these tribunals. Uh, what What's the danger of this in your view? I think the danger is enormous. Um, I think that is how this nation um, gets to the point where it's at now, where, where I, I think we're actually literally in the transition from a once free country to, to an authoritarian one. We're in the midst of that, perhaps even quite close to completing the transition. And I, I would say the biggest driving factor in that is actually the lack of moral, moral clarity and lack of moral courage amongst our adjudicative decision makers, tribunals, judges, etc. Um, over the last 20 years, that trend. I mean, it's, it's unfortunately, it, it's so slow and it's so um, unseen by the average person. Uh, but I constantly get people um, in their 40s, 50s and 60s. They say to me, OK, this Mr. Kitchen, how did we get here? How did this happen? Right. Like last I looked when I was your age in my 20s and 30s, like Canada was doing OK. It was pretty free. How yeah. come we're this, you know, bizarre authoritarian nation? I have to explain to them. Well, there was this slow creep amongst um, our, our decision makers over the last 20 years away from just, in, you know, interpreting and applying the evidence and interpreting and applying the laws to imposing their own views on, on society and remaking society in their own image. This was always the danger of Section 1 of the Charter, right? It was always an invitation to individual human beings who are always susceptible to wanting to remake the world in their own image and impose, use their power to impose their views. We're all susceptible to that, right? Right. Even I am as a libertarian, right? I want the world to be free. I want everybody to be libertarians. I want everybody to respect individual rights and freedoms. I'm not willing to impose that, but there's that desire. I feel it because I'm human. And so what happens is that when you, when you are foolish and design a constitution that, does not, that ignores human nature and therefore invites people to do exactly what's happened over the last 20 years, you, you, you get a society that could have been free, but it, it, it falls apart because it, it didn't protect itself against that. And that's, that's what it is. That's what I see amongst these decision makers at, at the tribunal level or at the judge level is they don't care about the constitutional rights. They don't care about the evidence. It's about their own personal views. And they'll shroud and cloak themselves in um, terms of, well, I wasn't persuaded by this evidence. And, well, you know, rights aren't absolute. And I have discretion under the law in Section 1. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, I, 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 I can make a decision here that might disagree with this, but it's, it's still right. And I'm going to impose it. That's what I've seen in my, I mean, my career is short. I've only been at it for six, seven years. That's what I've seen throughout my entire career. I went through law school. I read the decisions from the eighties and nineties, right? When the charter came out, you got people like Yakabuchi and and McLaughlin before she turned to the dark side. Uh, They made these decisions where it was very much, this is the evidence. This is the law. This is the outcome. You know, we're not robots, but we're also not activists. We're going to, we're going to use our, our minds and our positions to interpret and apply the evidence and the law. And we're going to come to a decision that's consistent with the constitution. And then somewhere in the late 90s, early 2000s, we see this shift, right? Mm. All the old, the old crotchety guys that really cared about the letter of the law and, you know, really cared about tr- judicial tradition and stare decisis and all the rest of it, they started to retire and be replaced by new people. And we see this shift. And right. I've seen it, I've, I see it ba- based on what I've read from before I became a lawyer. And then as a lawyer, the shift just continues. And here mm. we are. And, and it, so we were set up to fail, I think, with COVID because we were set up with a system full of people who saw themselves as sort of, you know, moral authorities um, who were in this uh, wonderful position where they could remake society in their own image and it would be better. Like they actually believe they're going to make it better. Right? They actually believe right. it's a better world where people who don't comply with the mask rules get punched into the ground. That's a better world. More yeah. censorship more government rule, that's a better world, and we can help make that world, and we're going to do so, right, because we want to. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's, how, that's how judges and tribunal uh, um, members have, I think, viewed the world and viewed their role the last three years, which is why we have this weird situation where now a lot of our rights are just words on paper. I mean, the charter, I think, really, in my opinion, is just words on paper. The human rights legislation is just words on paper. I mean, if you're LGBT or, you know, your, your, your skin color is not white, I mean, Great. But if you're one of those unfortunate people that is like an unpopular member of society, you can't look to those laws anymore. They don't mean anything. They're just words on paper. And what matters is whatever the woke ideology of the moment is, because because all the decision makers are going to grab on that and impose that through their personal view. Mm -hmm. That's what I've seen the last three years, you know, uh, uh, trying to litigate all this COVID stuff. That's what I see over and over and Mm -hmm. over and over again. I don't see anybody dispassionately taking the law, taking the actual evidence and just saying, look, you know, just like Lord Denning did, this is the law, this is the evidence, and, and this is what I'm going to do with it. I haven't seen anybody do that once yeah. yet. And, and it's uh, concerning because it, it gives the appearance that courts and tribunals are sort of rubber stamping, uh, you know, government policy. Exactly. Uh, th- this is a very, this is a very deep concern. And um, one of the things that's troubling about uh, seeing this, uh, this sort of uh, takeover or wokeification, if you will, uh, professional colleges is that professional colleges have historically been a bulwark against this. They've been there mm-hmm. to protect uh, these the professions and to maintain their independence and their freedom, which is very, very important to a properly functioning society. There's a degree of trust, and I'm sure Dr. Wall would agree with this, there's a degree of trust that uh, a patient needs to have in a chiropractor or a physician or some other healthcare provider. The same degree of trust uh, needs to be had between a client and a lawyer uh, or any type of professional situation. And the trust is that the person going to them for advice or treatment or help can trust that they're getting honest, frank advice that is based upon the best information available. We have a situation now where for example, uh, physicians cannot give a patient certain advice about the benefits of something like ivermectin. Uh, a doctor cannot necessarily or risks censure or even suspension if they dare to tell a patient about the risks of taking, oh, say, an experimental drug that's called a COVID vaccine. So, Dr. Wall, coming back to you and your day-to-day life, I presume you're still practicing, still helping your patients. How do you deal with that? You say that you're concerned about, uh, you know, your professional college and the support you have there. You fear the sort of big brother looking over your shoulder. How do you navigate that balance between providing the best possible information and treatment and advice to your patients and the fear of censure from your college if you say or do the wrong thing? Well, excellent question. Um, I think in the end, you know, you have to dig deep inside of yourself. And you need to, uh, you know, I think Robert F. Kennedy said something about 
uh, moral courage is rarer than great intelligence these days. And so you have to dig deep, dig deep and, and um, uh, go with what you know to be true. Some of these things are inherent common sense issues. Um, but, you know, in the end, as health professionals, yeah, we should be thinking people. Uh, we have gone to school. We have endured a lot of uh, academics um, and, and uh, we've studied. <laughs> And we endured. should be thinking. Interesting choice of words. <laughs> Very we, apt, we should, I would say. Yes. We should be thinking people. We should be able to dissect different uh, studies and, and uh, look at different viewpoints right. and, and be able to come up with uh, something that makes sense. And yes, mm -hmm. there may be a little bit of difference of opinion, and uh, but it shouldn't be to a point where um, you know these regulatory bodies come down on you for, for something that uh, is clearly uh, within a, a reasonable scientific um, understanding um, versus being something that's completely way off base. I, I think um, our colleges have have decided that they they own um, they own the final word, and uh, there's no wiggle room for for somebody who wants to um, truly you know exercise their their great intelligence that they've gained over the years. Yeah. And, and studies, so. Yeah, it is a concern also that oftentimes they seem to be marching in lockstep with uh, government, not necessarily so in Alberta. I know that our Premier Smith has been critical of the medical college, uh, and, and I think rightly so uh, because of the mistakes that were made over COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder, gentlemen, whether either of you think that there might be hope on the horizon. It seems to me that... Um, <laughs> a professional college has chased a very big, angry, powerful bear into the woods in the form of Dr. Jordan Peterson. And, um, of course, his situation, because he's so well-known, because, let's face it, he has so much money, and he's so smart and so stubborn, that um, he's taken on the Psychological College in Ontario. They haven't backed off. Um, if that case actually goes forward into hearing it seems to me that if that goes the way, I, I, I would say, whichever way that goes, either it's going to result in a really absurd decision, as absurd, absurd or more as the one that happened to you, Dr. Wall, or else he's going to win. Uh, you know, God, God bless us all if he does. But either way, it seems to me, it seems to me that this could have a very broad reaching effect for all of us who are governed by these, uh, these, these self-governing uh, professional boards and colleges. Would you agree with that, James? Yes. I actually think that's part of the reason why the tribunal uh, couldn't bring itself to follow the evidence in the law in this case, right? Because it would have been a real blow to the, to the mask, the pro mask narrative. And I think, I think that's unfortunate, but that's part of the reason I'm, I'm only speculating, but I'm, but right. I, but I, but I do, I do honestly think that that's part of the reason why they ruled the way they did, because if they hadn't of, they knew I would have publicized it and it would have been, a, it would have been a huge blow to the pro COVID narrative. Um, so yes, I do think I do think there is some hope. Uh, I do think there um, there can be some accountability. Uh, I do think the colleges can lose, and if pe people start to care and pay attention, I mean, people cared and paid attention to Dr. Peterson. They showed up, they protested, they're writing about it in the mm -hmm. media. Uh, I think this is great. When I saw this happen to him, I said, you know what? Um, I'm really glad it's happening to him. It's unfortunate it's happening at all. But I'm glad it's happening to him because he's got the guts and the money and the platform to really bring this to the fore and, and, and push back. I'll give you two examples of how I think this, this, this can work. And I do a lot of work in professional discipline. It's a passion of mine. Right. Yeah. There was a, there was a chiropractor who said something about that experimental drug you mentioned to his patient who unfortunately happened to be a nurse. And so she had some cognitive dissonance. She made a complaint. I took him on as a client college went after him college of chiropractors here in Alberta. And then they decided to back off and settle with him. Okay, so they didn't bring it to a hearing. They didn't try to impose some huge penalty on him. This was after Dr. Wall. So this was after the college had publicly admitted that they'd spent over $200,000 persecuting Dr. Wall. Wow. And, and I'm sure they've spent more than that now. But that's what they publicly admitted back during the process. And um, there was, there was to, from my perspective, there was an indication from the college that they, didn't want, they did not want to have Dr. Wall 2.0 with me. Right? Mm -hmm. And so for... Um, you know, what I think may have been the first time in many, many, many years, because the college doesn't typically do this, they actually settled with him. They didn't bring it to a hearing, they settled with him. The College of Chiropractors, their practice is usually to bring things to a hearing. 
And so uh, from my perspective, you know, it was, it was because Dr. Wall and I pushed back and made it so painful for the college to go after him that they didn't want to go after this other guy. So I thought that was oh. great. I'll give you another interesting example. I criticized the court of Alberta for its vaccine mandate way back in the fall of 2021. There was a complaint filed against me by a uh, lawyer in Ontario who worked for one of the big banks. I heard about this. And uh, now I can't give specific details because for some reason there's, there's, a, there's sort of a, there's sort of a secrecy clause and I'm still trying to figure this out. There's a secrecy clause in the law society mm. um, uh, legislation about how I can't talk about this with, with any detail. But there was this complaint basically said, you know, look, Mr. Kitchen's uncivil and he's criticizing the court too much and that's unprofessional. And ultimately, um, that complaint was dismissed by the Law Society. Now, I can't tell you what happened and, and, and why, but I was a little surprised. You just told I, us. <laughs> I expected, I expected the Law Society to take Mr. Kitchen to task for publicly criticizing the court's vaccine mandate. Wow. And they haven't. They didn't. And I'm left saying, hmm, wonder what that says about whether the Law Society finally sees um, a limitation on its own ability to persecute its members. And maybe it says, mm, we won't go after let's this. Hope. Let's that's hope. Good. And, you know, that's and, and that's that's brilliant, James. And and uh, let's hope that's true because it proves that sometimes you've got to fight these fights just to find out where the limits are, right? Just to find where the find out where the boundaries are, you know, in the game that you're playing. Uh, but you, you you mentioned cost. This is something that we that we've, haven't mentioned. It's really important, though, is it does put a great uh, onerous weight on people like Dr. Wall. Dr. Wall, you might be, uh, you know, enormously wealthy. I don't know. You did well maybe on the on the dot-com craze. But I, I would think that this has uh, been very expensive for, for you, this fight. It's put a great pressure on you and your family. Are you, are you, you know, suffering the, uh, you know, James' immense, uh, his immense legal bills yourself? Or do you have some help? Has there been... Crowdfunding is Liberty Coalition helping you. How how are you managing to you know to to fight this fight and to finance it? Mm -hmm. Well, out of the uh, early stages of the game, it was is all out of pocket uh, for for legal costs. But uh, yeah, then relatively early in the game, uh, Liberty Coalition came and suggested that Wonderful. they would like to hold my my legal fees uh, and and take care of those, which was. An wow. absolute godsend because yes. you're right. There's no way I could have taken that upon myself, yeah. um, and and this battle would have been way too much for me. So, yeah, it, it's been quite a quite a help. Well, God bless them for doing that, and and uh, because uh, these fights are so important, and this is exactly why uh, you know Liberty Coalition and, and groups like them are here, and and uh, it's so wonderful that they are because without them, I mean, just be. Uh, you know, sitting duck, people like you just be sitting ducks for this type of yeah. oppression. And I think oftentimes the powers that be, the ones who are spreading this evil, uh, really count on that, you know, that, that they're going to drive people into poverty with these legal fights. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a wonderful Liberty Coalition is uh, so supportive. I know they do a lot of tremendous work uh, and that James helps them with that. So that's, that's great. Uh, speaking of uh, masking, I, I want to say this, this is a bit of a dig. Um, we know that masks don't work because the New York Times has told us that they do. The New York Times, a former newspaper, this is the same newspaper which on September 1st, 1939, actually reported that Poland had invaded Nazi Germany. That's the New York Times, folks. Uh, that's where they are. That's where they live. Mm -hmm. uh, so, okay, gentlemen, this has been just a wonderful uh, conversation. I'm so grateful for it. Um, we're at the part of the program now where we get into something called the reading list. Uh, James had some great suggestions last time. I'm going to ask both of you to perhaps recommend a book or two. The first book that uh, I'm going to refer uh, people to is called uh, United States of Fear. It's specific to the U.S., but has, uh, has uh, implications also for Canada. Uh, this book is called United States of Fear, How America Fell Victim to a Mass Delusional psychosis and those who are interested uh, might want to go back and listen to the interview we had with dr uh, robert malone who talked about the matthias desmond book the uh, the uh, psychology of totalitarianism but th this book uh, is described it's by a psychiatrist named mark mcdonald 
and he diagnoses that he diagnoses this, that we are suffering from a mass delusional psychosis driven by a pandemic of fear in response to COVID-19, which we've talked about today on this program. And uh, he says that uh, as the pandemic unfolded, uh, Dr. McDonald, much like Dr. Wall, grew increasingly concerned by the negative mental health effects he witnessed among his patients and, and uh, really uh, worldwide. These negative effects include stress, anxiety, depression, addiction, domestic violence, suicidal ideation, all directly traceable to the climate of fear being stoked by public health authorities and irresponsibly amplified by national media. These fears in turn drove a hysterical overreaction from government in the form of draconian lockdowns and mask and vaccine mandates of questionable value. But the fear did not abate and quickly took uh, on a life of its own, becoming an unstoppable force in all of our lives. And so here we have, um, in Dr. Wall's case, a really a living example of how that uh, came into the, 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 not only the chiropractic profession, but also the level of care that patients were receiving, which is really important. Uh, ironically, this is so true. Um, you know, the, the health, the health care of Albertans uh, and really uh, people around the world was so damaged by, by this pandemic in ways that had nothing to do with the virus. The second book is called The White Pill, A Tale of Good and Evil. This is a recent book that came out by Michael Wallace. And uh, it says, uh, it, the description is, the Russian Revolution was red as blood. The Bolsheviks promised that they were building a new society, a worker's paradise that would change the nature of mankind itself. Sound familiar? Uh, what they ended up constructing was the largest prison that the world had ever seen, a union of Soviet socialist republics that spanned half the globe. It was a country where people's lives meant nothing, less than nothing, and they knew it. That no matter what atrocity the Soviets committed, the secret police, the torture chambers, the show trials, the labor camps, and mass starvation, there was always someone in the West rushing to justify their bloodshed. For decades, it seemed perfectly obvious that the USSR wasn't going anywhere until it vanished from the face of the earth gradually and then suddenly this is the story of the rise and fall of that evil empire and why it is so important for the good to never give up hope that is the white pill so if you just stop and think about it you'll see the application of that to the present case and the final book is uh, one uh, from the late uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and um, of course he's a, a 20th century uh, theologian who uh, tragically was killed by the Nazis uh, only about a month before the end of the war. It's called The Cost or the cost of Discipleship. And uh, I mentioned this book because um, it's a great guide, uh, I think, and it speaks to the courage mm -hmm. of people like Dr. Wall. Uh, and Dr. Wall is actually walking and living out the type of discipleship that, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer described. And basically what he said in that book is that, um, you know, the adherence to the world of Jesus uh, means today to the businessman, the soldier, the laborer, uh, or the chiropractor or the lawyer. Uh, what did Jesus mean to say to us? What is his will for us today? Drawing on the Sermon on the Mount, Bonhoeffer answers these timeless questions by providing a seminal reading of the dichotomy between cheap grace and costly grace. Uh, he wrote, is the grace we bestow on ourselves grace without discipleship? Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again the girl which must be asked for, the door which a man must know. It is costly because it costs a man his life. It is grace because it gives a man the only true life. So here he's describing the difference between, uh, I guess, saying, well, you know, I really don't like what the College of Chiropractors are doing and, and actually saying, you know what, I'm going to stand up. I'm going to fight this. I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to risk something. I might be risking my, my career, my future, uh, my financial future my reputation, but I'm not going to settle for cheap grace. I'm going to actually walk out and pay the price to, or the cost of discipleship. And so I mentioned that book in this con in this context that really is a compliment to you, Dr. Wall, and for your yeah. courage that you've shown in bringing this forward, not only on behalf of chiropractors, but on behalf of all Albertans, uh, including your patients. Uh, so uh, I'm grateful that you've, I want to say I'm grateful to you for appearing here today and also for the fight that you fought. So those are my three books. Perhaps, Dr. Wall, do you want to um, go first and mention a book or two that you think would be useful to people taking in this podcast? Sure. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Leighton. That was very kind. 
kind words. Um, <clears throat> um, I, I've read so much in the last three years. It's unbelievable. A lot of, of short essays, research papers, et cetera. But um, just a couple that came to mind uh, recently, I read a book called Solving the Brain Puzzle uh, by Dr. Bill Code. And uh, it gives uh, some helpful insights into um, how we can protect um, and deal with maybe toxicities uh, that affect the brain. Uh, a lot of helpful tips nutritionally and lifestyle-wise. Dr. Code was uh, someone who has suffered with MS and uh, really offers a lot of good suggestions for, for somebody who can uh, improve their brain health. Um, and then another book that was referred to me by James' wife many years ago called Live Not By Lies. Oh, yes. By Rod Dreher. Rod Dreher, yes. Um, brilliant book. Yeah. Excellent, excellent book. Um, a lot of uh, very cogent uh, points made that just have similarities to today uh, mm. that most of us can really, um, you know, take to heart and, and live out. So, um, And then thirdly, I, I cannot... Um, forget the Bible. I'm sorry, of but uh, that's, that's uh, my foundational book. Without it, uh, these last three years would have been disastrous. And I found a lot of, a lot of strength uh, by reading through uh, portions of the Bible that just my, my whole world has lit up again with the application of how the Bible um, um, makes so much sense and gives a lot of wisdom and comfort for, for what we're going through. So those were the three. I, I would have guessed that last one uh, in your case, uh, but the first two are, 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 are I, I'm not familiar with the first one. I'm very grateful for that one. The Roger book is already on our list and is one that's often cited here and it is a brilliant book. And I have to thank James because he's the one who, uh, who pointed me onto that one as well. So James, uh, did you have some, some new suggestions for us? Last time you had some terrific ones. Well, I was thinking about this last night, and the book that kept coming to mind was uh, an obscure, uh, unusual one called The Screwtape Letters. Oh, yes. This by is... C.S. Lewis. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you guys are nodding your heads, but I'm, I'm sure a lot of younger people haven't even heard of this no. book. Um, no. And the, re the reason I would recommend it is, is because it gives a unique window into uh, trying to further understand human nature. Right. And I don't care whether you're whether you're Christian or not. I mean, you know, if you know anything about C.S. Lewis, the author or the stuff he wrote about, obviously, most of his stuff had Christian themes. Yeah. But I would encourage anybody who 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 is just exploring or agnostic or whatever. Read this for its window into into human nature. Um, I, you know, I knew a lot about history and I know a lot about the law and I'm kind of a smart guy. But going into covid, I, I, I realize now, three years later, how little I understood about human nature about how little I understood um, about the depravity of the average individual person, you know, the, the propensity to be cowardly, for example. Yes. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking lots over the last three years about human nature and trying to understand it better um, and, 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 and looking at things from that perspective, right? right. Um, and I think, and so this, this, I read this book three times, twice right in a row when I was in college and then once later on, it had a, it had a profound impact on me. Um, and I think, uh, and it's a short book. And I think anybody who wants to have a greater window into understanding human nature and what's really going on, read that book. Because when you get the um, perspective of um, a demon who's trying to destroy uh, uh, individual humans, that's a different way to think about things. It might help you to understand some things. So wow. I think C.S. Lewis does something that maybe nobody else has, has ever been able to do yeah. uh, in that book. So Yeah. I'll just it, mention about that. that. You're so right, James. That is a brilliant book. Uh, one thing I'll mention to people is that um, you can actually listen to, there's an audiobook that's free on YouTube and it's narrated by the great John Cleese. And uh, there's a lot of wonderful humor, very wry British humor in that book as well. It's, it's, uh, it's a great read. Uh, one of the most brilliant things about that book uh, that shocked me, and I reread it myself recently, is that C.S. Lewis accurately predicted the danger of social justice. He called it social justice, but really he described perfectly the nature of wokeness, mm -hmm. uh, what it would be, and also its source. Yeah. 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 I know. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, but, so <laughs> gentlemen, uh, again, I want to thank you both of you so much for being with us today on Gray Matter. This has been a really an illuminating conversation with both of you. I want to wish you 
much continued success, James, and all the work that you're doing. And Dr. Wall, God bless you and the fight that you're fighting. I pray that you will win. I believe that you will win. I believe that those of us on the right side of the case will all win. I, I believe that battle has already won, has already been won, and you know which one I'm talking about. Uh, the truth has already been won. It's, it was won on the cross. Uh, and it's just for us, uh, you know, to, to quote Dr. Bonhoeffer again, it's for us to walk that, that out. That's the cost of our discipleship. And both of you are great examples of that. And so thank you very much for all that you're doing and also for being our special guests here today on Grey Matter. Thank you so much, Lincoln.